Hello and welcome to episode 9 of This Shared Ownership Thing podcast, where we bring on different guests to talk about all things home, including useful advice around home buying, selling or staircasing, why shared ownership could be an option for you and sharing our amazing customer stories. For the benefit of any new listeners, shared ownership is when you buy a share of a home and you pay rent on the share that you don't yet own. If you're able to do so, you can go on to purchase more shares of the home. This is referred to as staircasing. Until, if able to, you can purchase the whole 100% of the home. The shared ownership deposits can be as low as 5% of the share that you purchase, and this makes it a more affordable option for many people. I'm Cheryl, a marketing officer at Asta Sales, and today I'm joined by Ed Till, head of new business and delivery at Asta Group. In today's episode, Ed will be answering some of our most asked questions about new builds and new developments, and he'll cover why developments experience delays, how the Asta handover process works, and all about snags. Now, before we get into the nitty gritty questions, let's get to know Ed a little bit better. It's time for a quick fire question round. Welcome, Ed. Hello. Are you ready for your questions? Yeah, go, go for it. Okay, number one, as a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? So, as a child, I think I uh, most wanted to be uh, to own my own surf shop, to be honest. And oh, I realised that I really no, but I used to I used to love going to the beaches in Cornwall. So as I grew up, I always wanted to work in a surf shop and own one. And then I worked in a snowboard shop like in my early late teens, and so that fulfilled my ambition. So that was that really. Oh, so once you'd done that, you didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah, it kind of burst the bubble because it's quite boring day to day. Well, we only used to get like one or two customers, so you could literally go eight hours without seeing anybody. You sort of only come and bought some stickers or something. <laughs> um, are you a dog or a cat person? Definitely a dog person. Um, we've what got a dog is the at, dog you have? A sausage dog um, called Josie. He's eight, eight, eight months old. Oh. We've got a cat in the house as well, but she's not really my friend. She not? She doesn't like you? Yeah, no, I think it's mutual. We just sort of do a click. We've got like a two-meter boundary that we don't, don't encroach on. <laughs> do you feed her or does your partner feed her? No, I don't feed her, no. Oh, no. okay. Um, what is your favourite ever TV series or film? So my favourite ever film is um, Point Break. But the original, not the, not the remake, because the remake just makes you feel sad because it's so terrible. But yeah, the original with Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves, definitely my fav- all-time favourite film. Never heard of this film. Really? Great. Yeah. And, uh, it makes me feel young. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you prefer a film over a series? Uh, pretty much. Like with the boys mm. at the minute, we're watching a lot of films, um, which is enjoyable. So we're just going through the Austin Powers um, trilogy at the moment with them. Oh, love that. Yeah, they're not, they're not quite getting all the innuendos, which is helpful. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> That's great. If you were stuck on a desert island and could only have one thing with you, what would you take? It's quite tough, isn't it? I don't know. I've really a telepo- tough. Teleportation device, but I think I'd, ideally I'd probably have to take a tarpaulin just because tarpaulins are massively versatile because you can sleep underneath a tarp you can have a picnic on a tarp. You can gather up wood and carry it as a bag. So yeah, definitely a tarpaulin. And that would, uh, I think my wife would be surprised if I didn't have a tarpaulin because that's what we always have our picnics on. <laughs> oh, I feel like you put a lot of thought into that. Yeah, I had to give it, because I was sitting there panicking, thinking, well, 
well, would you t- would you take a knife or would you take a you know <laughs> try, like, not that I actually a tarp all in. Love that. Okay, so now we've got to know Ed a little bit better. We're going to go into the proper questions now. So are you ready for us to start with those? Yeah, far away. So one of our most commonly asked questions is, why do we not label our house types the same as developers? Um, We have a lot of people contact us and ask if we're going to have this house type, for example, say like a Persimmon Hanbury available, but we tend to go more just off plot numbers. Do you know why this is? Yeah, so the, the, it, it's generally speaking, if we're working on um, developer-led products where we're buying, say, 40 or 50 homes out of their wider development of, of 100 homes, they will usually provide a marketing name for their own, for their own house types. But for the affordable house types that are on that plot, they're, they're usually defined by a, a reference number, such as AH for affordable home, and then the, then the number for what it is, a two-bed, four-person, or whatever. Um, so they don't populate a marketing name for us. Um, there are exceptions. I think Red Row Homes will have, uh, within their affordable um, housing products, they have units with various names like Tavy. Um, trying to think of another one. But they definitely name them. So that could follow through to our marketing. But I, I think with developer-led products, because they don't populate a name for us, it's, it's ultimately we then disseminate that information to the wider team and to, to the marketing team. And that, and that's all that we have. We don't have something which we could um, could readily label unless we were making the names up ourselves, which could potentially cause problems because we may end up duplicating yeah. what's on, on another site or with another developer. Okay, that makes sense. How soon into the build is the kitchen and bathroom spec decided on with shared ownership homes? As obviously with the open market. Um, when you buy a new build home, if it's pre-roof stage, you can choose the spec, but you can't usually do that on shared ownership. No. So to think about how we generally contract with, on my side of the business, which is with, with the big house builders, is we will enter into contract with them. Um, and in so doing, we need to stipulate what we're buying from them. So we're buying the house and we're also buying the bathrooms at a certain specification and the kitchens at a certain specification, which includes vinyl flooring, etc., etc. And so the, the standard of kitchen that we're buying for the shared ownership homes is predefined right at the beginning of the contract. And that could be some years before the developers e- development's even started because we do enter into contract before they've got planning consent, for example. Um, but even if they are soon to start on site, we've stipulated what type of kitchen we like. And then early on in, that, in the construction stage, um, normally even prior to first fix, they're wanting to know what, um, what colour selections we would like and they need to do that at scale if you think we're buying 50 to 80 homes we're not in a position unfortunately to be able to stipulate a different finish for each house type we need to think right okay what works for a three-bedroom house and what works for a two-bedroom house or or a flat with an open plan kitchen and so it's purely driven by the the early timing which is they need to call those off um, to build into their program of, of a six to nine month build um, but also our, our need to, to have certainty over what we're getting and to make sure it works. Um, and we have, I think in the recent past, we considered, we had a scheme which was custom build where uh, the developer was keen to see um, choice brought into the affordable homes in the same way that they were offering choice to the private customers. And because of the timings, actually, we were quite open to doing that, but because of the timings of when they needed that information, we just we hadn't even started marketing 
the properties, let alone having yeah. any certainty over who might be the eventual purchaser and, and what their colour choices may or may not be. So it is primarily down to the fact that they need it early on, especially with supply chains being what they are, to, to, to have certainty in the build programme and hopefully meet completion targets for the houses. Do you think that will always be that way or do you think there may be a time come where people are given more choice with affordable housing or do you just not think it would work? Um, I struggle to see where, because of, the, because of the timing, I think it's always going to be that, probably that direction that we're, that we're being asked yeah. to specify too early on to be able to bring uh, customer choice into that element of it, unfortunately. Yeah, no, that makes sense. What is the difference between a land-led development and a Section 106 development? So within affordable homes, um, the terms are banded around quite quite loosely, aren't they? That, oh, that's land-led or that's 106. And, yeah. and essentially, it, you know, even our teams are, are divided into two parts and I'm the developer-led or the Section 106 side of the business. Um, and so to, 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 to be brief on it, Section 106 refers to um, a, a developer's obligation to build affordable homes on their site. And so if, if a developer is coming forward with 100 houses, then the planning authority will oblige them to, to have a certain percentage of that site, possibly 30 or 40%, to be affordable homes. And that is secured through a Section 106 agreement between the, the landowner who gets the planning consent and the local authority. And so that's why when we, we contract with a, a developer and we're buying those 30-40% of their development, they are loosely termed, you know, they're termed Section 106 homes. Um, we do on occasions buy more of their homes than just the Section 106 homes, um, but that's but that, you know, more, more the exception rather than the norm. The land-led side is actually, does what it says, you know, is, is essentially where Astra is going out, securing a land opportunity and then working up the planning consent ourselves and delivering the homes, and that could be a mixture of tenure for, for rent, for private sale, and, and for shared ownership. So it's land-led by the nature of the fact that we are out to secure the land, whereas the Section 106 team, um, or Section 106 developments, we're out to secure homes which primarily already have planning consent off another developer and buying a part of their site. Yeah. does the handover process work so we have a lot of people ask why they can't view the home that they've reserved before it's handed over um how does that all work so we have a lot of um quality checks throughout the construction process and our team of uh, project managers and our surveyors and our, our clerk of works who who inspect specifically the construction are out on site um between them every week checking what's uh, what's being done on our properties, checking progress and the quality of the build. But as you approach um, handover, we have typically our contracts require an eight-week notice and a four-week notice, and that they're predicated on on the stage of completeness of, of the homes. Um, once we get those notices, we then need to inspect the properties for finishes um, and make sure all the items that we've collected and identified up until then, are being closed down and issue, and issue any, any reports that we have 
um, of any concerns back to the developer for them to close down. So within those plots, because of the targets that developers are working to to meet their own deadlines, they can they can be a hive of activity and there can be a lot going on, a lot of finishing, painting, touching up, repainting, replacing bits that have got, got damaged, unfortunately, in construction. Um, and, and so it can be quite fraught on site. To, to kind of articulate the process, once they've done that and, and, and confirmed to us they've closed them all down, we will then re-inspect, hopefully, hopefully confirm that the, the, the vast majority, if not all of the items that, that have been reported have been closed down, and then go through all the paperwork to ensure it's correct before taking, taking handover. The reason why uh, primarily can't do viewings before Aster's actually taken handover is because contractually we're not in possession of the home, the developer is, and they, whilst we might own the land, they're under licence to do the construction. And the property, until we've taken handover, is part of a live construction site. And so there's all sorts of safety implications that may yeah. be involved with having members of the public uh, uh, visit those homes or even with us sort of guide, guiding them round. Um, and, and, and really, if you think often, often on the developer-led sites, it's usually the externals that are catching up the homes are pretty much complete, but actually outside the home is still laying, laying roads, et cetera, et cetera, and, and getting, getting it to a finished state. So it's really about uh, safety and the fact that we're not in possession of the, of the unit, so aren't insured to have um, members of the public walking around what isn't our site, it's the developer's site. So. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Can you give some more information on the NHBC certificate and what are the main things that it covers? So um, essentially each home comes with a warranty. Um, it's often provided by the NHBC, but there are other warranty providers we use. The, the second one, which is most common at the moment, is Premier Guarantee. So all the new all, all, all homeowners who purchase a property will have either an NHBC or a Premier Warranty, essentially. Um, both warranty providers, what, what they essentially do is they also inspect properties throughout the construction and they are, in doing so, they're, they're seeking to ensure that the developer is building the homes to, the, to their required standards as well as to building control compliance. Um, and once they're satisfied, and only once they're satisfied, they issue a, a completion statement which confirms they are now putting the property under warranty and they're satisfied with the build quality. The warranty essentially provides loosely they do vary between the different providers but they provide a period of protection against um, all defects um, so in the first instance uh, if a defect arises in the first two years with NHBC um, it should be reported through to the developer to address um, if they if they fail to do so then it, those defects can be pursued through the NHBC warranty and they can compel the developer to, to attend to them. And if they don't, then, then equally um, they, can, they can either commission the work or, or, or compensate the customer under the insurance warranty. But the, the longer-term protection that the NHBC warranty gives is, is usually between 10 and 12 years after completion. It provides a structural warranty of quality. So there, there shouldn't be any issues that arise because they've been inspecting the properties throughout. But in the unfortunate instance if there was a structural issue such as a, a roof leak or, 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 or issues with uh, foundation design um, then the warranty provide, protects the customer essentially and us as, as, the, as the asset holder for rented properties um, against those defects and we can pursue a claim with the NHBC to get appropriate compensation to, to remedy the um, defect. Nice. 
Um, are more developments fitting electric charging points within their sites? Um, uh, yeah, essentially, yes. The, we, we, in the last couple of years, we've seen more and more come through, um, primarily because uh, there's been a requirement of the planning consent that's been secured. Um, and so there's, you know, it's been a bit uh, hotchpotch as to where they're at. So in my region, for example, we have electric charging points coming through in, in certain parts of Surrey, but maybe not so much in other areas of Hampshire because the planners haven't, you know, the planning uh, authorities haven't required it. But um, from it's now coming in as a building regulation requirement, and so any properties ah. where which are registered for building regulation uh, post June this year will actually require some form of, of electric charging point. So it won't be instant in terms of our program, because a lot of our current program that's on site was already registered a year or, or, or longer ago with, with building regulations, but you'll start seeing it filtering through fairly rapidly with, with the new schemes that we're securing through our future program. Oh, wow, that's exciting. Uh, do you have any new contracts in any exciting new areas that you're working on? Any upcoming developments in new areas or anything? Well, I think all of our ex- areas are, are really exciting. <laughs> of course, Sharon. Of course. But, um, so, yeah, so my patch, I'm responsible for the eastern side of our patch of Hampshire, Sussex, Surrey and Berkshire primarily, and Dorset, I always forget. Um, <laughs> so Poor Dorset. In, I know. <laughs> So in recent years, we've been expanding into Sussex, which was a new area for Hampshire and have quite a substantial build programme now in, in, in West Sussex and specifically around Chichester. Um, this year, we've also uh, branched into Wokingham in Berkshire for the first time and have a scheme secured, which is uh, 74 homes, of which um, 35 will be uh, shared own- for shared ownership. Oh. And they're all shared ownership, semi-detached um, two and three bed houses so it's hopefully a really desirable and attractive scheme um, and exciting because it's always nice from from an ego point of view to get into a new borough and and make something happen but also to meet the to meet the kind of needs of the business and be expanding into those those new areas Um, we do we we often bid in locations astas astas boundary areas to grow our Mm. our our patch and our location Um, but we, we can't pick and choose either because it's a competitive market and so yeah. we bid on a lot of things and, and, and win some of it, but we, we don't win all of it for sure. Um, and so sometimes it, it's, not, it's not necessarily purely by design as to where we, where we end up. Um, and a recent example, I say we've also, in Hampshire, because of various things that have gone on with the planning, um, the planning issues in Hampshire, our programme in the recent past has, has, been, uh, has dropped in terms of numbers. And that was a core patch and certainly is a core patch for Asta. But I used to have a lot of activity when I was a project manager in that area. Um, but it's now starting to, to, to come back again and we're starting to, to, to win schemes there once again. So it, it's not always the case, say, it's not always a case of just building where you want, it's building where the opportunities are and where yeah. we can get our noses in front of, of other, developer, other registered providers to secure the affordable homes that, that are on offer. Nice, exciting times ahead. What does the project manager role involve? 
quite a lot actually I'd say um, <laughs> so I always have a colleague that used to say we kind of it's not a, a jack of all trades but a master of none but you need to be generalist in terms of your knowledge area and know a lot about uh, or a small amount about a lot of things to do with development rather than being a, a very specialist role and an expert mm. in, in one um, but day to day a project manager's role will involve uh, seeking out and, and working to secure new opportunities um, overseeing and managing a programme of, of, of housing projects, generally around six for a full-time member of staff. Um, and that will be engaging with the site, attending site, site, site meetings, um, inspecting the homes, assessing the programme that the developer's giving you, adding comfort to that, feeding that into the wider business to try and give assurances to, to when we expect the homes to be delivered, making sure the quality of the product is there, making sure that the... Um, uh, the specifications being met as well, and coordinating uh, our various members of the product team. So, so that might be, you know, updating valuations and inputting that through mm. to the business, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, <clears throat> they are also involved in in managing parts of the defect process and closing down schemes and um, release and, and managing the payments for the, for the development projects and helping secure our charging program, which is where we borrow money against our assets to fund our future program. Um, so it's uh, sorry, and also uh, engaging with local authorities, representing ASTA at that yeah. level, and and meeting with developers to 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 kind of uh, be the front of shop for for the business um, in that in that guise as well. It's a very varied role then. Yeah, it is varied, and it and it can be really exciting, and and, and so it can be you know lots of different challenges because there's lots of plates to spin at, at the same time yeah. to keep all things ticking over and. and and one of the main challenges that, that they have, I think, is, is often being able to give certainty to a development program and assurance to the wider business when there's so many yeah. various factors which aren't in our direct control that can affect uh, when, when the homes actually are complete and are ready to, to, for us to take possession of. And that's a, a judgment call that, that the project managers have to take. Yeah, absolutely. So delays, can you give a brief overview as to what, why there can be delays, um, issues that are out of control, our control, such as like seasonal delays or material shortages? We do get a lot of people contact us asking about why their home's delayed or can you give an insight into that? I think, yes, for sure. So, so when, when feed it, as I said, the, haven't touched upon it with the project manager's role, in feeding the information from the business, we're getting the information about when a property will be ready uh, from a developer, and we're not in control of the actual construction program. They are, but they are also reliant upon subcontractors performing, um, materials arriving on time, planning obligations being met and discharged, um, and there's a, there's a lot of people involved in different elements to, to get a property ready and be finished and be signed off by by everyone. So. Um, First and foremost, when a, when a developer is, is, is telling us of a certain date, we will look at how realistic that is and build a, a degree of pessimism into it to try and manage expectations within the business, but also because realistically often the homes come in slightly later than, than we, we'd, um, we've been told. Yeah. Um, but added to that, because we drive to try and get the best quality at handovers, when we get notices, often we'll get an eight-week notice and we'll be pushing back with the developer on the case that we don't think the property's ready, and there's a two-way conversation, depends what the, con- the contract says, et cetera, et cetera. But as we enter into that kind of eight-week cycle, as I mentioned earlier, about of 
preparing for handover. At the issue of the eight-week notice, the homes aren't in a finished state. They are approaching being finished. And so a lot can happen between that point and the handover date where the quality or our requirements for, for the state of completedness of the home needs to be needs to be achieved and if it isn't then that's what you know we have to make a judgment call are we prepared to take a home that, that's almost there but not where we want it to be or, or, or actually is it better to take a to take a uh, a stance and push back and, and wait until the, the to the homes are ready because ultimately we need to deliver a good quality product and so I think there's always a tension between timeliness and and 100% quality because there's so many yeah. various factors that come to it. I think also, um, and I've had it in the past, where everyone is acting in goodwill and working very hard to achieve an outcome, um, but one thing's being missed and it's a critical thing and that ultimately means that, I don't know, the building control can't sign the property off or, or, or the NHBC warranty provider isn't happy with it or we're ultimately not happy with it um, until it's sorted because it might affect the safety or the long-term enjoyment of the home. And that way you just end up and say, well, it has to be sorted until you can, before occupation can be, can be made. So, yeah, um, yeah. There, there, there are a lot of facets to it, notwithstanding, you know, planning issues or the odd piece of paperwork or a gas certificate <laughs> having an error on it or something like that that, that also causes, <laughs> causes a delay. That's good to know. I know you briefly touched on it um, when talking about the handover process, but with snags, what are snags and how does that snagging process work? Um, so snags really are items that our surveyors have identified when they're inspecting the property prior to handover. They're items or, or small issues that they have identified in their inspections that, re- that re- need to be addressed. Uh, and, and typically they may be a minor scratch or, 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 a, or a blotch on the paintwork or um, trying to think of something else. There might be the, uh, an item that's been installed, say a tap, it's been installed and it's not quite, yeah. quite the right tap or something. But they really shouldn't. No snag should really affect the in beneficial um, enjoyment of a property. And that's where the judgment call is required from the project managers because we really want to minimise the list of snags we have at handover because it creates a legacy and a challenge for those to then be closed down once somebody's living there. Um, but at the same time, you could be waiting for a very long time for a developer to actually manage to close down absolutely everything. And so you have to say, well, OK, well, if we've got eight to ten items and they're all minor items, it's possibly reasonable that we take that home, move someone in, and then and the developer comes down and, and, and sorts those out afterwards. So it, it is a subjective thing and it is a judgment call um, in terms of which developer you're working to with how committed they are to, to closing down their snags, previous experience and, and really what the best outcome is for, for everyone involved and, and primarily the customer. I mean, we can if we've already experienced delays, for example, it may be that we've got the property as good as we can get it at that juncture and it's in everyone's interest to actually take the property and then pursue the snags than it is to say we're not taking yeah. the property until it's snag-free. Um, but we do, we do try and get to a situation where we've got no major items um, at all that would, which would actually, somebody would be within and be instantly disappointed what, with what they found. We do try and, and work very hard to, to minimise it to be minor items that shouldn't really affect people's enjoyment of the home. Perfect. 
that is the end of all of your questions brilliant thank you thank you so much for coming on to the podcast oh you're welcome thank you for listening and for your support the shared ownership thing podcast is brought to you by asta sales visit asta.co.uk forward slash sales for more information Thank you.